is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today, the show where you'll hear all the latest mental health-related news, everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports on the latest research into the causes of mental illness and potential new treatments. That delivered to you by yours truly, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay, more than 20 years of experience in the practice of psychiatry, delivering the mental health news without the hype and distortion of other media sources, trying to better inform the general public about mental health issues and to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. Welcome back to the show. This is the July 23rd, 2014 edition of Psychiatry Today, and hope you've been feeling well. And uh, to start the show tonight, we're going to have um, a story about the issue of gun violence and mental illness. Unfortunately, in recent years, there have been all too many incidents where mass shootings have taken place committed by people with serious mental illness. And this has sparked a tremendous amount of debate in this country as to how this problem can be addressed. And there are so many sides to the issue. Uh, there are the sides that uh, deal with the Second Amendment rights that this country holds so dearly and how those potentially could be curtailed uh, for one set of people who may be at risk of committing violence. The other side to that is it's next to impossible for even the psychiatric profession to predict who may become violent or not. And then there's the issue of the lack of access to mental health treatment, or I should say the difficulty in access to mental health treatment, and also on that side, the frustration that many families have when they know they clearly have a family member who needs help, but that family member is not cooperative with getting help, and they're powerless to get that person into the treatment they know that they need. Recent mass killings, such as the one in Isla Vista, California, and elsewhere, have again raised concern among lawmakers and the media about the possible connection between mental illness and gun violence. This new study that we're going to talk about tries to set the record straight and recommends an evidence-based approach to limiting firearms fatalities. A group of international scholars, including co-author Vicki Mays of UCLA, analyzed dozens of epidemiological studies on gun violence and mental illness and compared the results to media-fueled public perceptions about the dangerousness of mentally ill individuals. The researchers found that mass murderers with mental health problems, while they receive a tremendous amount of media attention, are not typical of those who commit violent crimes, and the vast majority of those with serious mental illness do not engage in violent acts. Still, the study authors stress gun violence can be reduced by instituting policies at the federal and state level that prohibit firearms possession among individuals 
who display clear risk factors for violence. The new research is published online in the journal Annals of Epidemiology and will be published in an upcoming print edition. Okay, well, we get the fact that although the mentally ill certainly are more stigmatized than ever by these mass shooters and the fact that this represents a tiny, tiny fraction of those who are mentally ill and it's a known fact that those with mental illness are far more in a way prone to become the victims of violence, not the perpetrators of it. The fact is something has to be done about these cases, uh, even though they are few and far between and certainly uh, not without good reason, uh, overblown by the media. <clears throat> Dr. May says, we need more evidence-based policies to effectively prevent gun violence. She is a professor of psychology and health services who directs the Center for Research, Education, Training, and Strategic Communication on Minority Health Disparities at UCLA. She says, we also need to expand mental health services and improve access to treatment. Some people are slipping through the cracks. Couldn't agree more with that. But mental illness is not the main cause of violence in society. Policies should focus more on limiting access to firearms for people with behavioral risk factors for violence during specific times when there is evidence that risk is elevated. All right, so the idea is you figure out who is at greater risk and you limit their access to firearms. Um, I assume the gun lobby and civil libertarians alike will have something to say about that. Uh, but then again, how do you determine who is at risk? What factors do you pick out and say, okay, when we see these risk factors, we're going to limit access to firearms? Well, let's see what the rest of the study showed. A history of violent behavior, especially with criminal justice involvement and other behavioral indicators of risk are much stronger predictors of future gun violence than having a serious mental health diagnosis. That is the claim of the researchers and it echoes the findings of the Consortium for Risk-Based Firearm Policy a group of national experts on gun violence prevention and mental illness that released a set of federal and state policy recommendations in December 2013. It's been known for many decades now that the only and best predictor of future violent behavior is past violent behavior and criminal justice involvement. Now, such risk indicators include being subject to a temporary domestic violence restraining order or having been convicted of a violent misdemeanor, having two or more driving under the influence convictions in a five-year period, and having two or more controlled substance convictions in five years. Now let's take a look at those. Those factors may be statistically associated with a higher risk of violent behavior of violent crime in the future, but on the surface, uh, an argument could be made that these should not be reasons to restrict someone's Second Amendment rights. Let's take a look at that. Someone who has 
been subject to a temporary domestic violence restraining order. Well, on the surface, you, should, you certainly would not want someone who was threatening and abusive to anyone and therefore had a uh, protection order taken against them to have access to firearms. On the other hand, the argument could be made, what about those cases in which a temporary protective uh, restraining order was taken out on someone for no good reason? Uh, sometimes these restraining orders are taken out by aggrieved spouses, even though there was no threat of violence. And uh, so that alone, taken out of context, it's hard to predict that someone will become violent. Having two or more driving under the influence convictions in a five-year period. Okay, is someone is certainly likely to uh, commit violence with their car, uh, albeit un unintentionally, but does that mean they should have their access to firearms limited? There are obviously good arguments on both sides of that. And having two or more controlled substance convictions in five years, uh, again, not all drug criminals are of the violent variety. And we just uh, this past week saw some sentencing reforms uh, for drug convictions, in fact. Now, the researcher's analysis supports additional recommendations by the Consortium for Risk-Based Firearm Policy, including the development of state mechanisms allowing law enforcement officials to confiscate guns from individuals who pose an immediate threat to themselves or others, and to request a warrant for the removal of guns when the risk of harm is credible, if not immediate. In addition, the consortium suggests that family members and intimate partners be able to petition the court to temporarily authorize gun removal and prohibit gun purchases by individuals who pose a credible risk of harm to themselves or others. Again, public safety is certainly a laudable goal, but I can see where this whole idea of state and local law enforcement being able to have officers confiscate guns who are deemed to be a threat to themselves or others, uh, you know, who determines whether they're a threat or not and how, and who determines whether the warrant for removal of guns is justifiable because the risk of harm is credible, if not immediate. Uh, and uh, at least it does contain a mechanism whereby family members and intimate partners who are well aware of the threats and, and violent tendencies of a person who's mentally ill and not getting treatment can petition the court. At least the court will look at the issue and hopefully examine all sides and be able to make an informed legal decision about removal of guns. Um, I can tell you that in my own private practice, I have already had people tell me that, or ask me rather, I should say, Dr. Bay, does my being a patient of yours mean that um, sometime law enforcement could just take away my guns just because I'm a patient under your care? And I've had to reassure these people that is not the case, that there would have to be some uh, egregious aggravating factors in their behavior 
and uh, legal problems to get even close to that point. On the federal level, the researchers' findings support the consortium's suggestion that the government clarify and refine policies dealing with gun disqualification for individuals who have been involuntarily committed for mental health reasons. And state laws should be strengthened to prohibit gun purchases or possession following a short-term involuntary hospitalization. And the consortium also recommended a clinically informed judicial process for restoring gun ownership rights following their removal based on evidence of risk of harm. Well, we're going to take a commercial break here. When we come back, we'll have more on this issue and other mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. We'll be right back. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Your psychiatrist host, Dr. Scott Bay, with you. And we're talking about research into gun violence and mental illness, trying to address perception versus reality, and trying to come up with policy recommendations to reduce violent crimes committed by the mentally ill. Right before the break, we were talking about how the study recommends rules uh, regarding gun possession for people who have certain legal records and things like that, restricting gun purchases, making it easier for uh, police and law enforcement to confiscate guns, uh, making it easier for family members and intimate partners to petition judges to uh, remove guns or prohibit gun purchases. This is all well and good, but what about the easy availability of guns illegally? None of this would stop that. So, um, you know, again, it points out that there's certainly a limit to what can be done, even if policies that would significantly restrict Second Amendment rights for certain individuals were put in place. Now, while improving mental health care in the United States is a critical goal, the researchers say it's important to understand that improving such care will not solve the problem of gun violence in America. We do need better mental health care in America. An estimated 3.5 million people with serious mental illnesses are going without treatment every year. But even if schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and depression were cured 
our society's problem of violence would diminish by only about 4%. A person with serious mental illness is far more likely to be a victim of violent crime than a perpetrator, as we said before. Mental health disorders are much more strongly linked to self-harm or suicide than to violence against others. A very small proportion of people with serious mental illness pose a threat to others, and gun violence and mental illness intersect only on their margins. Approximately six of every ten gun deaths in the United States are suicides, which points to failures in both the mental health care system and firearms regulation. The public health, the public mental health system in most states is woefully inadequate, fragmented, overburdened, and underfunded. It shouldn't be harder for a person in a suicidal mental health crisis to get treatment than to get a handgun. That, according to Jeffrey Swanson, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Duke University School of Medicine and lead author of the study we're talking about. I could not agree more with that. Uh, it is a very, very sad and woeful reality that someone suicidal, it's probably easier for them to get a gun than it is for them to get the mental health treatment that they need. And as far as public mental health systems being woefully inadequate, overburdened and underfunded, you couldn't find a better example of that than here in Georgia. In fact, the situation is so bad, it's been under sanctioned from the Justice Department for the past few years. The researchers also note that accurately predicting who will commit mass killings is extremely difficult, if not impossible. Citing a 2012 review of 73 studies on the accuracy of psychiatrists' predictions of violent behavior in their patients, they said that prospective risk assessment by mental health professionals is only slightly more accurate than flipping a coin. Some states already authorize law enforcement agents to temporarily remove guns from homes in the case of domestic violence. Researchers urge Congress and the states to take sensible steps to reduce gun violence. The right to bear arms is not unlimited and must be balanced with public safety concerns, according to Dr. Mays. Our project was about using data to inform policies that will be most effective in reducing firearm-related injury and mortality while respecting the rights of lawful gun owners. We're asking, can we step back and use the best data to help rein this problem in? In the current environment, where guns have become a radioactive political symbol, one can only hope that a risk-based approach to limiting firearms would emerge as at least one square inch of common real estate between those who are most concerned with the individual right to bear arms and those inclined toward greater regulation of guns in the public interest. We desperately need a place to start, that according to Dr. Swanson. Now, I think that's the key here. Uh, the debate is between those on the side of unfettered Second Amendment rights and those on the side of some restrictions 
to prevent violent acts such as this. I think that since the two sides are so diametrically opposed and uh, have a lot of difficulty finding the uh, at least one square inch of common real estate that Dr. Swanson refers to between them, uh, I think this issue is not going to be resolved anytime soon. And it may be that the only hope to prevent uh, violent acts like this is increased security. We already have to put up with intrusive security when we are about to board a plane. And uh, I think if there isn't increased security in schools and other places, then we're just going to have to get used to these shootings uh, as being part of everyday reality. Uh, personally, I think increased security in schools and workplaces, uh, while it would seem intrusive and expensive, for now may be the only and best solution to try to prevent some of these uh, violent mass shootings committed by the mentally ill. Uh, of course, things like easier access to mental health treatment certainly would help a lot, and certainly it would also help it to be easier for family members to petition to courts to say, hey, uh, my family member or my intimate partner is mentally ill and dangerous and is not getting help, and uh, do something to prevent them from acting out violently. Well, there's certainly lots of sides to this issue. It's a, a huge debate that will be ongoing, and I'll be sure to continue to bring you uh, more updates on this issue as, as I see them in uh, re reported. <clears throat> now, let's move on to a study that was thought of in the wake of the Boston Marathon bombing. And it turns out that these researchers had already done brain scans on some kids in the course of doing a study on childhood trauma. And then after the Boston Marathon bombing, they said, hey, wait a second, we already did brain scans on these kids who have had childhood trauma. What if we could look at those kids who were exposed to trauma from the Boston Marathon bombing and see if we could pick out any differences? Well, sure enough, that's what they set out to do, and their findings are very interesting. The area of the brain that plays a primary role in emotional learning and the acquisition of fear is called the amygdala. It's a small almond-shaped structure in the middle of the brain, may hold the key to who is most vulnerable to developing post-traumatic stress disorder after being exposed to trauma. Researchers at the University of Washington, Boston Children's Hospital, Harvard Medical School, and Boston University collaborated on a unique opportunity to study whether patterns of brain activity predict teenagers' response to a terrorist attack. The team had already performed brain scans on Boston area adolescents for a study on childhood trauma. Then in April 2013, the two bombs went off at the finish line of the Boston Marathon, killing three people and injuring hundreds more. Even people who were nowhere near the bombing reported distress about the attack 
and also about the days-long manhunt for the suspects, which included a lockdown of the city. So one month after the attack, Katie McLaughlin, then at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School, co-author Margaret Sheridan of Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School as well, and their fellow researchers sent online surveys to teenagers who had previously participated in studies to assess post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD symptoms related to the attack. By using functional magnetic resonance imaging scans from before the attack and survey data from after it, the researchers found that heightened amygdala reaction to negative emotional stimuli was a risk factor for later developing symptoms of PTSD. This study was published on July 3rd in the journal Depression and Anxiety. Dr. McLaughlin says the amygdala responds to both negative and positive stimuli, but it's particularly attuned to identifying potential threats in the environment. In the current study of adolescents, the more their amygdala responded to negative images, the more likely they were to have symptoms of PTSD following the terrorist attacks. The brain scans were conducted during the year prior to the bombing. At the time, the teens were evaluated for their responses to emotional stimuli by viewing neutral and negative images. Neutral images included items such as a chair or button. Negative images showed people who were sad, fighting, or threatening someone else. Participants rated the degree of emotion they felt while looking at each image. The MRIs measured whether blood flow increased to the amygdala and the hippocampus, an area of the brain involved in memory, when viewing negative images as compared to neutral images. In the follow-up survey, the teens were asked whether they were at the finish line during the bombing, how much media exposure they had after the attack, whether they were part of the lockdown at home or school while authorities searched for the suspects, and how their parents responded to the incident. Remember how parents respond and show anxieties definitely affects children. They also were asked about specific PTSD symptoms, such as how often they had trouble concentrating and whether they kept thinking about the bombing when they tried not to. All right, well, we're going to have to take another commercial break here. We'll go over the researchers' findings when we come back from that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and listen to The Doctor's Lounge, where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. 
Join us Thursday, 8 a.m. every week. For years, Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center has been providing outstanding care to patients of all ages. They are dedicated to patient satisfaction and have been the recipient of the Georgia Otolaryngology Association Patient Satisfaction Award. They welcome any questions you may have about their services. Their practice includes treatment of asthma, allergies, sleep apnea, snoring, hearing impairments, and chronic sinus disease. Dr. Elena George is a board-certified ear, nose, and throat surgeon. Her training in New York has included training at Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital and Memorial Sloan. Kettering Cancer Center. She believes in practicing both the art and science of medicine. All patients are seen by Dr. George. All treatment options are discussed and time will be spent to answer all questions. Their office is located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road in Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. They are open Monday through Friday, 8.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. At Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center, you can be confident that you are in good hands with their professional team. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you. You're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news. And we're talking about how researchers were able to use reactions to the Boston Marathon bombing in young people to gain some clues about what's going on in the brain to indicate who is most at risk for developing post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, the researchers found a significant association between activation of the amygdala, that again is the fear acquisition center of the brain, while viewing negative images and whether these teens they studied developed PTSD symptoms after the bombing. Dr. McLaughlin, the researcher, said a number of previous studies have shown that people with PTSD had heightened amygdala responses to negative emotions, but researchers didn't know whether that was there before the trauma or only happened afterwards. By scanning the adolescents' brains before the bombing, researchers were able to show that this amygdala reactivity before a traumatic event predicts your response to that traumatic event. While two-thirds of Americans will be exposed to some kind of traumatic event during their lifetime, most, fortunately, will not develop PTSD. Therefore, the more we understand the underlying systems that shape reactions to traumatic events, the closer we move to understanding a person's increased vulnerability to them. And that could help in the development of early interventions to help people who might develop PTSD later. And that's really the take-home message. Obviously, it isn't practical to scan everyone beforehand and say, oh, well, if you're exposed to a traumatic event, you're most likely to develop PTSD based on your scan results. But really, this is a way to just learn more about brain mechanisms in PTSD that will hopefully help trauma victims in the future. <clears throat> Next up on tonight's show, when I saw this article, I'm like, okay, well, everyone knows that people under stress may eat more. Uh, stress eating or comfort eating may lead to weight gain. It's a common maladaptive coping mechanism, unfortunately. So the fact that uh, stress can slow a woman's metabolism 
and lead to weight gain, according to this new research, isn't exactly a shocking revelation. But nonetheless, let's take a look at it and uh, see what information we can glean. The fact that stress may leave you heading to the cookie jar, again, is not news. But what the researchers did is they took 58 women whose average age was 53, and then they asked them about their stress levels the previous day, and then they gave them a meal that included 930 calories and 60 grams of fat. The Ohio State University researchers measured how long it took the women to burn off those calories and fat. On average, women who had one or more stressful events during the previous 24 hours burned 104 fewer calories in the seven hours after eating the meal than those who were stress-free. On a daily basis, that difference could add up to a weight gain of nearly 11 pounds a year. The stressed women also had higher levels of the hormone insulin, which contributes to the storage of fat. The study was published in the latest issue of the journal Biological Psychiatry. The findings show that over time, stressors could lead to weight gain. We know from other data that women are more likely to eat the wrong foods when stressed. And data say that when women eat the wrong foods, weight gain becomes more likely because they are burning fewer calories. Previous studies have found that people who are under stress or have other mood problems are an increased risk for becoming overweight or obese. The new findings suggest one reason for that possible connection. It isn't only the fact that being under stress may make you turn to food for comfort. It's the fact that something about being under stress in and of itself interferes with your ability to metabolize the food that you eat. We know that we can't always avoid stressors in our life, but one thing we can do to prepare for that is to have healthy food choices. And so that when these stressors come up, we can reach for something healthy than going to a very convenient but high-fat choice. Certainly a good recommendation, but I think difficult for a lot of people to follow. So there you have it. Maybe this information will influence those decisions or not, but just the fact of being under stress in and of itself can slow down your metabolism and make you more prone to gain weight. Next up on Psychiatry Today, a brain implant to help restore memory. That's right, the first neural device to restore memory is under development. The Department of Defense's Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, awarded the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory up to $2.5 million to develop an implantable neural device with the ability to record and stimulate neurons within the brain to help restore memory, DARPA officials announced this week. And that's record activity from neurons, folks, not to record actual memories. There's no way to do that. And in terms of restoring memories, 
It's just by stimulating nerve cells that it helps restore memories. It's not like it's going to implant different or new memories into the brain. Okay, that is still, I assure you, the stuff of silly science fiction. The research builds on the understanding that memory is a process in which brain cells in certain regions of the brain encode information, store it, and retrieve it. Certain types of illnesses and injuries, including traumatic brain injury, Alzheimer's disease, and epilepsy, disrupt this process and cause memory loss. Traumatic brain injury in particular has affected 270,000 military service members since 2000. The goal of the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory work, driven by their Neural Technology Group and undertaken in collaboration with the University of California at Los Angeles and the company Medtronic, which is a medical device company, is to develop a device that uses real-time recording and closed-loop stimulation of brain tissues to bridge gaps in the injured brain and restore individuals' ability to form new memories and access previously formed ones. The research is funded by DARPA's Restoring Active Memory, or RAM, program. Specifically, this neural technology group will seek to develop a neuromodulation system, a sophisticated electronics system to modulate brain cells that will investigate areas of the brain associated with memory to understand how new memories are formed. The device will be developed at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory Center for Bioengineering. <clears throat> the project leader, Santinderpal Panu, says currently there is no effective treatment for memory loss resulting from conditions like traumatic brain injury. Now the Center for Bioengineering there is a unique facility dedicated to fabricating biocompatible neural interfaces. He also said this is a tremendous opportunity from DARPA to leverage Lawrence Livermore's advanced capabilities to develop cutting-edge medical devices that will change the healthcare landscape. They will develop a miniature, wireless, and chronically implantable, that means it can stay in indefinitely, neural device that will incorporate both single brain cell and local field potential recordings into a closed loop system to implant into the brains of patients with traumatic brain injury. The device will be implanted into a region known to be very much involved in memory, the entorhinal cortex and nearest structure called the hippocampus. And it will allow for stimulation and recording from 64 channels located on a pair of high-density electrode arrays. The entorhinal cortex and hippocampus are regions of the brain associated with memory. These arrays will connect to an implantable electronics package capable of wireless data and power telemetry. An external electronic system worn around the ear 
will store digital information associated with memory storage and retrieval and provide power telemetry to the implantable package using a custom RF coil system. Designed to last throughout the duration of treatment, the device's electrodes will be integrated with electronics using advanced integration and 3D packaging technologies. The microelectrodes that are the heart of this device are embedded in a biocompatible flexible polymer. Using the Center for Bioengineering's capabilities, Dr. Panu and his team of engineers have achieved 25 patents and many publications during the last decade. The team's goal is to build a new prototype device for clinical testing by the year 2017. The collaborators will focus on conducting clinical trials and fabricating parts and components. The program poses a formidable challenge reaching across multiple disciplines from basic brain research to medicine, computing, and engineering. But it is the suffering individual, whether an injured member of the armed forces or a patient with Alzheimer's disease, who is at the center of all these efforts. And this work on the Restoring Active Memory, or RAM, program supports President Obama's brain research through advancing innovation Innovative Neurotechnologies, or BRAIN, initiative. Years of experience developing implantable micro-devices through projects funded by the Department of Energy prepared them to respond to DARPA's challenge, uh, according to the project leader in the Neural Technology Group, Lawrence Livermore Engineering. Well, exciting stuff. We'll see how this goes uh, over time. All right, another commercial break coming up here. We'll be back with more mental health-related news after that. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that dizziness may be a sign of heart disease, iron deficiency, high or low blood pressure, low blood sugar, or an inner ear infection. Dizziness can be take the form of a spinning sensation, also known as vertigo, or a feeling of lightheadedness. The individual can also feel faint or have a rapid heartbeat. If you take high blood pressure medication, remember to take the medication daily as directed to control your blood pressure. Diabetics must remember to eat after taking their medication and to eat at regular intervals. If you have anemia, make sure to take a multivitamin that contains iron and to eat vegetables such as spinach. Dizziness after a cold or flu may be due to a virus. If you have dizziness, it is important to see your doctor for a complete physical examination. Please join me Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schurz, as we talk about the topics that doctors talk about amongst themselves, such as Medicare, Obamacare, alternative forms of care, and health information technology. Join us every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. 
Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And next up on tonight's show, why people with bipolar disorder are bigger risk-takers. Researchers at the universities of Manchester and Liverpool have discovered that circuits in the brain involved in pursuing and relishing rewarding experiences are more strongly activated in people with bipolar disorder, guiding them towards riskier gambles and away from safer ones. The study by the universities of Manchester and Liverpool, published in the journal Brain, used brain imaging to identify neural pathways that are responsible for the symptoms of the disorder. The findings will help to design, evaluate, and monitor therapies for bipolar disorder. Patients with bipolar disorder experience episodes of depression and mania. Mania are periods of intense excitement and irritability, often leading to very risky behavior. And these episodes occur unpredictably. It is one of the most serious and difficult to treat forms of mental illness, associated with reduced life expectancy, a high rate of suicide, and sometimes persistent impairment of work and social relationships. In recent years, a number of people in the public eye, such as Stephen Fry and Catherine Zeta-Jones, have spoken openly about their diagnosis of bipolar disorder, raising awareness of the condition. But problems with social stigma, stereotypes, and prejudice against sufferers are still widespread. The Medical Research Council-funded study will look at the neuroscience underlying the risky decisions made by bipolar patients. Researchers invited participants to play a game of roulette in which they made safe or risky gambles. The researchers measured their brain activity throughout using functional magnetic resonance imaging, which again can give you not just a static look at the structure of the brain, but can show you what areas of the brain are more or less active in real time. Their findings revealed a dominance of the brain's pleasure center, which drives us to seek out and pursue rewards, responding to them automatically before conscious awareness kicks in. This ancient brain area, called the nucleus accumbens, was more strongly activated in people with bipolar disorder compared to a healthy control group. It's called an ancient area of the brain because it's present in the brain in much, much older evolutionary species than we humans. Now, another key difference arose in the prefrontal cortex, a recently evolved area of the brain, which is associated with conscious thought. Much like the conductor of an orchestra, the prefrontal cortex gives us the ability to coordinate our various drives and impulses, such as quelling our urges when faced with risky decisions, allowing people to make decisions that are less immediately rewarding but better in the long run. The researchers found that for controlled participants, their prefrontal cortex guided them towards safe gambles and away from risky ones. For the people with bipolar disorder, 
the balance swung the other way. Greater neural activity for risky gambles. The greater buzz that people with bipolar disorder get from re reward is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it helps people strive towards their goals and ambitions, which may contribute to the success enjoyed by many people with this diagnosis. However, it comes at a cost. These same people may be swayed more by immediate rewards when making decisions and less by the long-term consequences of these actions. The study shows how the, the new tools of neuroscience can be used to better understand the psychological mechanisms that lead to a psychiatric disorder, which until now has been very difficult to understand. Understanding how the brain works to regulate the pursuit of goals will help researchers to design evaluate and monitor better therapies for bipolar disorder. The researchers are keen to explore the potential for psychological therapies that can support people in engaging with their value systems and therefore better regulate their pursuit of goals. Next up on tonight's show, how you cope with stress may increase your risk for insomnia. A new study is the first to identify specific coping behaviors through which stress exposure leads to the development of insomnia. Results show that coping with a stressful event through behavioral disengagement, giving up on dealing with the stress, or by using alcohol or drugs, each significantly mediated the relationship between stress exposure and insomnia development. Surprisingly, the coping technique of self-distraction, such as going to the movies or watching TV, also was a significant mediator between stress and insomnia. Furthermore, the study found that cognitive intrusion, that is recurrent thoughts about the stressor, was a significant and key mediator, accounting for 69% of the total effect of stress exposure on insomnia. While a stressful event can lead to a bad night of sleep, it's what you do in response to stress that can be the difference between a few bad nights and chronic insomnia. The study results are published in the July 1 issue of the journal Sleep. The study involved a community-based sample of almost 3,000 good sleepers with no lifetime history of insomnia. At the beginning, participants reported the number of stressful life events that they had experienced in the past year, such as a divorce, serious illness, major financial problem, or the death of a spouse. They also reported the perceived severity and duration of each stressful event. Questionnaires also measured levels of cognitive intrusion and identified coping strategies in which participants engaged in the seven days following the stressful event. A follow-up assessment after one year identified participants with insomnia disorder, which was defined as having symptoms of insomnia occurring at least three nights per week for a duration of one month or longer 
with associated daytime impairment or distress. The study is an important reminder that stressful events and other major life changes often cause insomnia. The study identified potential targets for therapeutic interventions to improve coping responses to stress and reduce the risk of insomnia. In particular, they noted that mindfulness-based therapies have shown considerable promise in suppressing cognitive intrusion and improving sleep. So things like mindfulness meditation, which we already know helps cope with stress, would therefore help people sleep better. And though we may not be able to control external events, we can reduce their burden by staying away from certain maladaptive behaviors, like trying to cope with drinking or using drugs. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine reports that short-term insomnia disorder lasting less than three months occurs in 15 to 20 percent of adults and is more prevalent in women than men. And now on the show, we have a stress in the workplace update. Say no to interruptions, yes to better work. Modern office workers are expected to multitask regularly, often juggling multiple projects and priorities over the course of a day. Studies have shown that the typical employee in an office environment is interrupted up to six times per hour. But how does that impact the finished product? New research published in Human Factors evaluates how ongoing interruptions can negatively affect the quality of work. People don't realize how disruptive interruptions can be, according to the co-author of the study. Uh, I'm not so sure of that. I think many people are well aware that interruptions interfere with the quality of their work. Uh, but they go on to say there is value in determining whether interruptions affect the quality of the tasks that many people perform regularly, such as writing essays or reports. A study assessing how varying levels of interruption affected writing quality in an essay project. Uh, two groups of participants were given time to outline and write an essay on an assigned topic. One group was interrupted multiple times with an unrelated task, and a control group had no interruptions. Independent graders scored the finished essays on a numbered scale. The researchers found significantly lower quality in essays completed by the participants who were interrupted during the outline and writing phases than in the essays of those who were not interrupted. In addition, those participants who were interrupted during the writing phase wrote considerably fewer words. Leading the lead author to conclude, interruption can cause a noticeable decrement in the quality of work, so it's important to take steps to reduce the number of external interruptions we encounter daily. For example, turn off your cell phone and disable notifications, such as email, while trying to complete an important task. The reading about this research left me wondering, did anyone, including the authors of the study, really think there was any doubt that if you give people a writing task and you interrupt some and not the others, the ones who were not interrupted were going to do a better job? I mean, really? You had to do a, a, a research study to conclude that? Um, well, nonetheless, 
if their goal was to better uh, improve the lot of people who were subject to interruptions at work and demonstrate that doing so would improve the quality of their work, you know, I think they could have come up with something a little more convincing. Uh, the other aspect is this. So fine, we know that if email notifications and the cell phone were shut off and there was a door to the office the person had that they could shut uh, as opposed to being in a cubicle and that said shut door would be expected as a boundary, then yes, productivity and quality of work would improve. But good luck getting employers to go along with that. And with that, we have to wrap up tonight's show, folks. I hope you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you about mental health issues. And I hope that until we get together again next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.